purposes of civil liability, the torturer has become, like the pirate and slave trader before him, an enemy of all mankind. But we've also seen uh, challenges as uh, two food crises, the biggest financial and economic crisis since the 1930s, and the WTO has remained solid in the midst of this tempest. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Alien Tort Statute should not afford a cause of action to address the extraterritorial conduct of a foreign corporation. 751 Europeans have been elected to directly represent citizens from 28 different nations in all their diversities, with all their differences, with all their different outlooks on lives. But you all come together here. Hello, and welcome to Nomus Phone, a podcast series about current global legal issues produced by law students at Tilburg University's Global Law Program. I'm Ben, and today we're trying something new. We're endeavoring to regularly bring you interesting lectures and discourses concerning topical global law issues delivered in a variety of formats, and we're calling these new episodes Footnotes. For our first footnote episode, we're bringing you a lecture given by Dr. Randall Lesaffer on the legacy of President Obama's foreign policy. Dr. Lesaffer is a professor in Tilburg Law School's Department for Public Law, Jurisprudence, and Legal History, a prolific author and legal historian of international law, and Dean of Tilburg Law School from 2008 to 2012. When the date of the lecture was set in 2016, it was done intentionally to fall mere weeks after the inauguration of the new U.S. president. We couldn't have ever predicted that the discussion of Obama's legacy would be so sidelined by the flurry of activity we have witnessed since the inauguration, which makes a discussion of Obama's legacy all the more relevant. Arguably, the U.S. foreign policy establishment has been extremely influential around the globe over the last 70 years. President Obama himself openly acknowledged that he held a distinct place in the long arc of U.S. foreign policy history, often referring to himself as a relay runner, carrying and protecting a baton to inevitably pass it on to the next president. We pick up with Dr. Lesaffer on what Obama inherited at the outset of his presidency and the global legacy of his foreign policy. First of all, he's a traditional American exceptionalist to the extent that as many American Democratic presidents and many Republicans like Ronald Reagan, he's deeply embedded with the idea that America is an exceptional nation to the extent that it's the shining example or embodiment of, let's say, the Western political and economic system. It is the example of a free market economy. It's the example of a free society. It's an example of a personal rights respecting, and it's the example of a democracy in its own eyes. And as the most powerful Western state, it is also the natural leader of the West. There is no inkling of a doubt in Obama's mind that this is the case, and this is as it should be. So he doesn't doubt that intellectually in any way. But that isn't the whole story. First of all, you have to remember what he got when he became president in January 2009, an economy that was in deep, deep trouble. The banking crisis, Lehman Brothers, end of 2008. The banking sector needs to be saved. Bush already starts that. The automobile sector needed to be saved. 
And Obama has, in the end, to pass legislation through Parliament to the extent of $900 billion to save these two sectors, and he does so. So he has an economy that is a giant on wooden legs, to say the least, if not clay legs. And he has to move towards a very interventionist policy to save the economy at the time when he still have a, a democratic parliamentary majority to do that. That was his luck at the time. But also in the impossibility to raise taxes to make up for that in the budget afterwards. So he knows basically in his first six months, I'm going to squeeze the budgets to the utmost extent to save the economy while knowing full well that the chances of having a normal budgetary policy with more money for the army and more money for foreign policy or other policies is already now gone and lost with the estimation, as a brilliant political mind he is, that the prize will come in two years and will lose the parliamentary election, which is exactly what happens. So from the very beginning he knows, I need to take a kind of a enormous risky leak to save the economy, and it will be years for the results to be there in terms of economic growth, which actually happened quicker than he predicted in 2009. And I won't have the political leeway to do what everybody would basically say is necessary to raise the taxes, particularly for the higher income groups, because there will be no parliamentary majority in two years to do that. Secondly, he inherited an American military force in deep crisis. With the long deployment of troops and active involvement of troops in particularly Afghanistan and Iraq, with lesser and lesser volunteers to join what is a professional volunteer army, the United States Army was depleted in 2009, and he basically needed to find a breathing space for that army to restore itself as the effective world commanding fighting force it was supposed to be, according to official American policy. So that was a huge problem, number one, again, without raising taxes and having just spent thousands billions of dollars on saving uh, the economy. This is just the hard course. Thirdly, of course, United States under Bush had angered some of its key allies, like France, like the Netherlands, like tiny little Belgium, like Germany, and so on, and was at a low point of diplomatic credit within the Western world, let alone in the rest of the world, as, for instance, in the Middle East. Obama was and is, of course, great in giving speeches and, let's say, giving, as becoming president, hope that it would change. But then, of course, he hadn't still delivered in 2009 uh, on that hope. So that is the starting blocks he finds himself uh, in. What he basically did is, first of all, well, the key, actually, one of his key advisors wrote a book about his foreign policy, and I take a lot of my mustard from there, Derek Scholitz, and he entitled that book The Long Game. Obama went from the long game, the relay runner, basically, saying that I have four eight years. I need to make some major changes in American foreign policy. I need to step back from the overstretch of the 1990s and the 2000s, back to the 1970s, 80s, basically, in terms of our engagement with the world, and do that in a way that it doesn't, of course, cause too much trouble and crises in the world. That was the challenge. How would he do that? Well, first of all, by moving away from a too quick use of force and military, of defense, towards what he said, moving from the 1D to the 3Ds. While he said Clinton and particularly Bush used too much the D of defense, I'm going to be more flexible in my approach to problems by using diplomacy, development, and defense. Development meaning mostly economic means, money, in one way or another, and use defense as little as possible. So a more, let's say, laid back approach to crises and problems. 
Second major change is what I would call regionalization of problems. Under the doctrine of the war on terror, which Obama did not dare to call to a stop as an image, but under the image of the war on terror, which is a global war, anything that happens in the world can constitute a direct threat to the United States. Any two guys planning to make a bomb here in Tilburg or in Manila in the Philippines become a global problem under the spectrum of the global war on terror. Obama stepped a bit back to, from that by saying, no, we have regional problems and they're really regional and they should be solved as much as possible in the region with American participation, but not necessarily American leadership and particularly not a very commanding way of leadership. That's the second, I would say. So more flexibility and regionalization of problems. So do not see everything as a global problem when it can still be contained regional, which means, of course, that you allow regional powers more influence and more room to do their own bidding and don't do what the United States wants, necessarily. So you lessen your involvement, which, of course, you lessen the involvement, which means that you lessen your power. You lessen your influence. Why does he do that? Sustainability. Obama realizes, of course, as anybody would, that while in 1945, United States commandeered 50% of the industrial output of the world and 40% of the GDP of the world, today it commandeers 20% of the GDP of the world. And not because it's declining, because economically after the crisis of 2008, it's growing again and quite quickly or quite robustly for Western states. Of course, the rise of China, the rise of India, the rise of Korea, Japan, and so on and so forth explain why the United States is losing relative economic power in the world and inevitably long-term losing relative military domination in the world. So that's the third thing. Obama thinks I need to make America more popular with other states again, more, let's say, a likable partner, a more cooperative partner rather than a commandeering one, so to have or rebuild sustainable long-term relationships with key allies, but also with key opponents that are not so antagonistic as they had become particularly in the eight years of the youngest Bush um, presidency. So that's all pointing towards what you could call long-term. What just also adds to the equation, and that is something Obama will not say himself, all the rest he would certainly agree with, is that his foreign policy also from the very beginning had a great level of opportunism. That's Cuba, for instance. Cuba is an ample space. He could quickly solve that to some extent. He found himself in a place where he could restore normal relations or more or less normal relations with Cuba without making too much of an effort. Then I will do that. But if he had been president 20 years ago, when there were still many people from Cuba who would kill him for that, then he wouldn't have done it. So that's, let's say, a certain amount of opportunism he sees. In, he does what he can. And he, that's my criticism, sometimes gives up pretty quickly when he can't. To some extent, Obama's policy was an America first policy. His focus as a president was more than with Clinton and Bush and Bush and Reagan and Eisenhower and Nixon. His focus was much more, with maybe exception of Lyndon Johnson, on internal policy rather than foreign policy. It was on the economy. It was on the social security system. Obamacare is just one example of that. It was about ethical issues. It was about the relationship between the states and the federation. It was, his time was much more consumed with internal policy than with foreign policy if you compare it with the agenda of other presidents. So he certainly had an America first policy. From also the 
let's say, point of departure or the starting point that he felt, I first need to make America great again, if you allow me this, before we can, at home, economically, rebuild the army, rebuild the economy, before we can, again, risk adventures as we had. His view is that he inherited two wars from his predecessor, Iraq and Afghanistan. And his view was, when he became president, that he would end them within the next eight years, preferably even in the next four years, and that he would not allow a new war to happen on his turn, on his watch, not in four years and not in eight years. That was almost an obsession of Obama until the very end, an obsession which he exuded to su such an extent that the world started to know that they could do a lot and Obama would do nothing. So that was maybe a weakness. But it's basically the position of a decent man who realizes that he should not go to war if not absolutely necessary, and if the people are not willing to pay more taxes for it. Because that is one, of course, of the great criticism. At this point in the lecture, Dr. Lesaffer recalled three major foreign policy engagements that occurred during the Obama presidency to demonstrate the application of Obama's foreign policy. The Middle East, including the withdrawal of US troops and the Syrian civil war, Obama's self-proclaimed pivot to Asia, and the U.S. cooperation with Europe concerning Russia, the Ukraine, and Russia's annexation of Crimea. To best present the Obama foreign policy legacy in a context that is most relevant to us, here we've included the portion of the lecture concerning Russia and the multilateral cooperation with the EU through NATO. Uh, about what I think about Europe and the Ukraine. Well, again, a very new U.S. position. When the Ukrainian crisis happens, when Russia annexed the Crimea, when the civil war started in East Ukraine, when the MA-17 was down, with more than 300, almost 300 people killed, including one of our law school professors, as you know, in 2014. Obama's stance was basically triple. First it was, this is a violation of international law, we cannot allow it, so we'll take sanctions, and the sanctions will be in place as long as the situation endures. Many people consider that a weak position. So the United States, together with the EU and its European allies in general, took economic sanctions, targeted economic sanctions against the Soviet, sorry, the Russian, excuse me, uh, the Russian leadership uh, to punish it for its illegal action in Ukraine and the Crimea, knowing full well that that would probably not help. But the aim is here to create a permanent indication of illegality and the fact that this will not be accepted. That might be lame. But the United States was also one of the very few Western countries which never condoned or acknowledged the annexation of the Baltic Republics by Russia or the Soviet Union in 1944. And when these countries declared independence in 1990, the United States did not have to recognize them because it always recognized them. So it's a refusal to accept the unavoidable. Secondly, much more importantly, is the stance that was made clear by NATO and by Obama to Putin we may allow this to the extent that we'll not start a war over it, but we'll not accept it, Crimea. And what we will go over to war over is any attack on a NATO country. So it was basically very clear, Ukraine is outside of NATO, bad luck for them, but Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, they are in NATO, good luck for them. And measures were taken, small measures, measured measures, modest measures, <laughs> to indicate the willingness of NATO, including the United States, to go to World War III over that if necessary. Thirdly, and that is something that angered the Germans, the French, and the British, and the Russians, is that Obama said, but let's not exaggerate, let's not call it a new Cold War. It's not a global conflict. 
Russia is a medium regional power. It's not a world power anymore, except for those rusty nuclear bombs that could destroy the world, of course, but then France and Britain and India can do that too by now, and China, China. even Israel could destroy the world with its 200 nuclear bombs. After Chernobyl, anybody knows now that pretty, pretty much five explosions of nuclear weapons, some of massive nuclear weapons somewhere in Europe would make the largest part of the populated world inhabitable uh, for the next 100 or so years. So nobody in his right mind would think about it. But basically also said Russia's a regional power. He insulted Putin by saying that, but he put him in his place. Regionalization of conflicts, meaning the message was to Europe, Russia is your problem. You have to solve the Crimea problem. We're willing to take economic sanctions and pay for them because they're costly, of course, also to the Americans. But it's your problem. We'll only intervene when they really attack you along that NATO line. But for the rest, try to solve it yourself. Now, if we take all that together, what would you say about Obama's foreign policy? Well, that it's never good, of course, whatever the Americans do. They will always be reproached that they do too little or too much um, because they're, of course, the strongest kid on the block. Um, still, and I'm probably going to be there for the next 20, 30 years. So they have to take all the criticisms of either doing too much or too little, as this cartoon shows you. But what is that basically what it did? First, to put it ironically again, I sincerely believe that Obama has made America greater again, much greater than it was in 2008. He has saved the economy, he has restored the army, and he had restored the diplomatic credit of the United States. As he could rightly point out in the 2015 interviews, in many multilateral negotiations, in many alliances we have, people now ask for more America rather than less America. In 2008, the cl clamor was America should tone down, should get out. Now the constant invitation is America should take more leadership. And when we are invited, we do so. That's his claim. So he certainly did, uh, did out or did a lot of what he set out to do in those terms. Secondly, he certainly set the United States, in my view, on a more sustainable course by accepting that America in 2010 is weaker than it was in 1945 or in 1990 or even in 2000. That's just a fact of life. And by toning down the ambitions and the means of the United States in its involvement in the world to a level that it can stain, sustain long term while keeping enough reserves when a real crisis emerges to send in the cavalry and to pay for it. And it's constantly rehearsing to the political class, as long as you do not want to raise taxes, you don't have a basis to do more, whether you like it or not. I think so far so good, to some extent. But then he made, I think, some wrong estimations. He realized full well that by withdrawing back from the lines of, let's say, 2000s to the lines of 1950, from the, let's say, too overstretched strategy of Clinton and Bush towards the more modest strategy of the Eisenhower years, that he regionalized some problems and that he would allow regional great powers like Russia, like Turkey, like Iran, for instance in the Syrian crisis, more space and more room for maneuver. That by not acting in Syria, you can say many things about Obama, but he's a brilliant strategist. He knew full well that he opened a door in which Iran, which already it was in, would step in even more, that Turkey would step in, that Russia would step in. He knew that. What he overestimated, I think, was the willingness of other great powers like China or even Russia to, to cooperate. He's too much a liberal 
And in that extent, he believes that if he opens his hand, they will also open his hand. But he was often actually confronted with a fist, particularly by the Putin government, less so by the Chinese uh, government. He also underestimated the weakness of Europe and Japan. Obama has to have step in more to save Europe and Japan, Japan in its difficulties with China, Europe in the Crimea crisis, than he would have hoped so and wanted so, because he thought that the Europeans and the Japanese were stronger than they actually are. So he overestimated their economic power, their military power, and their electoral sustainability, and their willingness to do actually something without United States. You can already say a few things which are certain about Trump. First of all, he relinquished American moral leadership of the Western world. That's a fact. Within four weeks, he succeeded in giving up, surrendering the moral leadership of the Western world by showing, let's say, quite a cold stance on human rights, to put it mildly, by making it clear that he doesn't like any form of multilateral diplomacy, and certainly not its most successful form, the European Union, by making it clear that he's not certain about Article 5 on NATO, by his protectionist streak in his straits, so let's say he's stepping back from TPP, from TTIP, and maybe from the WTO in the future, if he would be consequential, he basically relinquishes the leadership of American international law, American institutions, American military alliances, and American discourse. That is in itself quite striking, to put it mildly. Of course, he's not followed there, if you look, listen to his own vice president, by the establishment around him. But in his communication, he has been very effective in doing that within four weeks, which is extraordinary uh, in itself. So at least we know that if anything happens tomorrow, the scepticism, cynicism, and unwillingness to cooperate of any American ally from the West will be at a historic low point. If anything would happen today or tomorrow that brings the Western alliance together, the French, German, British, Japanese, Australian, Canadese leaders will not go with a very open mind and with great expectations towards Mr. Trump to try to solve the problem together. Let alone, it is clear, and I'm careful as a historian to say that, but still that this is probably one of the American presidents ever to be elected with the least vision um, on foreign policy and what the importance of it is and what the effect could be of doing stupid stuff. Um, what is certainly also an effect of Mr. Trump being elected <coughs> and now in the White House is that Obama started a change in foreign policy towards a more modest and multilateral stance, which banked on the fact that his successor would continue that. And that means that today, with Trump, the Obama inheritance is already squandered. That the wrong man, of course, succeeded Obama because he was there for the long game. And now there's someone in the White House who says, well, that game was the, long game, was the wrong game. The long game was the wrong game. And he dropped, basically, the baton. And that means that Obama's inheritance, for now, um, is already lost. Obama's foreign policy was designed from the outset to be inherited by a president sympathetic to the multilateral, anti-conflict foreign policy of Obama. Arguably, President Trump's America First policies have dismantled and reshaped the U.S. foreign policy machine he inherited in just over a month in office, threatening to squander the Obama inheritance. Time will tell if the Obama foreign policy legacy can endure a Trump presidency and its visions of the U.S. as a more isolationist, self-interested global player.
Nomason Podcast is a production of students in Tilburg University's Global Law Program. This episode of Nomophone was produced by me, Benjamin Wiles. We thank Tilburg University Law School for supporting this podcast and Dr. Randall Lesaffer for his engagement in it. Thank you to Justin Karras for our credits music entitled As Far As I Can See. Watch out for more footnote episodes coming soon. And you can find all of our episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you for joining us. And until next time. It was going inside me.